0: developing future brought to you by the asian development bank institute in tokyo
1: a leading source of knowledge in fast emerging asia and the pacific for 20 years
2: hello everyone i'm timothy go and this is asia's developing future from the asian development bank institute in tokyo The Asian Development Bank helps its member countries build a better world through loans, advice, investment, and financial education. In this episode, we'll be hearing from experts looking closely at how financial and economic problems can be solved, how development plans can be better, and how countries and people can better secure a sustainable future in a complex, rapidly changing world, and also understand what is happening around them. For millions of people, it is a daily struggle to put food on the table, to get clean water, educate their children in the hope of a better future, put a roof over their heads, and let older people rest easy after a lifetime of work. On this week's show, we'll hear about what emerging economies can learn from South Korea and how it weathered the Asian financial crisis and came out even stronger. We'll also hear about how corruption and weak national institutions can undermine food security in countries big and small, regardless of their natural resources. Will the world's two most populous countries, the People's Republic of China and India, be able to feed their people when food consumption rises by 50% in the next decade? But first, I'll look at India's government push for more urbanization by creating towns that will grow along with information technology. I'm Timothy Go, and this is Asia's Developing Future. Urban areas contribute nearly two-thirds of India's gross domestic product, even though they account for only 31% of the country's population. They are India's growth engines. More remarkable is that India leapfrogged the manufacturing revolution and transitioned from agriculture to a service-based economy, with services now contributing 60% of GDP. In 2014, the Make in India policy was launched to boost manufacturing. The issue for local and foreign companies will be to identify comparative advantages of India's cities and which local and state governments attract investment and improve competitiveness by encouraging and protecting facilities for making and selling goods. Government knows that urbanization is important, and policies encouraging new towns to grow around information technology, for example, or education, or health. Cluster development models and special economic zones are being discussed to promote manufacturing and industrial townships, which will bring firms together to share specialized infrastructure, labor markets, and services. Special economic zones are meant to spur exports, encourage investment from domestic and foreign sources, create jobs, and develop infrastructure by cutting through bureaucratic red tape. The Jawaharlal Nehru National Urban Renewal Mission, a seven-year, $20 billion plan launched in 2005 to improve the quality of life and infrastructure in India's cities, required cities to come with a city development plan or a vision for themselves, drawing on their strengths. This was supposed to help city governments pinpoint the advantages and weaknesses of their local economies and where they were competitive before offering incentives and making major investments. Not much happened. Analytical tools are available to help city planners, policymakers, and firms decide what to make and where to make it. But little has been done to assess cities' competitiveness, making it hard to develop effective strategies and policies, especially for cities already economically and politically important. Policymakers must understand which sectors in local and regional economies need to be nurtured and promoted, and whether and where incentives are necessary. That episode was based on research done for the ADBI by Kala Sitaram Sridhar, a professor at the Center for Research in Urban Affairs, Institute for Social and Economic Change, Bangalore, India. So how did South Korea restore investor confidence after it was hit hard during the 1997 Asian financial crisis? Let's go now to Brendan Riley for this report
3: on what other emerging economies can learn from South Korea's ordeal. Emerging economies can learn a lot from how the Republic of Korea faced down the financial crises of 1997 and 2008 and emerged from hard economic slowdown stronger than ever. Painful macroeconomic and financial reforms plugged structural weaknesses and restored investor confidence and have put Korea in a better position to weather similar shocks, offering lessons for emerging Asian economies. In 1997, as the Asian contagion, which started in Thailand, hit Korea in its sweep and the economy reeled as foreign investors pulled out capital meant for investments and trade. By the fourth quarter of 1997, investors had withdrawn $26.1 billion from Korea's capital markets, equivalent to some 6% of the country's gross domestic product. This is a reversal from previous years when foreign investors poured in $52.3 billion in capital from 1994 to 1996, three times the figure from 1990 to 1993. The crisis came at a time when the Korean economy was already stressed by huge debts amassed by the Jabels, homegrown business conglomerates whose mantles covered steelmaking, shipbuilding, construction and finance as they sought to finance risky and unprofitable projects largely unchecked because of weak government supervision. The problem came to a head with Korea unable to defend the one, which came under attack along with other Asian currencies at the height of the 1997 crisis. This eventually forced the government to seek a $58 billion bailout from the International Monetary Fund in December 1997. The Korean economy was again in crisis in 2008 in the wake of the housing debt disaster which started in the United States. By the fourth quarter of 2008, foreign investors again withdrew from emerging markets, including Korea. Its capital account, which records transactions of purchase and sale of foreign assets and liabilities, had a deficit of $42.6 billion, or 20% of its annual GDP. Money was pouring out of the country. Again, Korea focused on structural weaknesses in the economy and shored up macroeconomic and financial policy frameworks. During the 1997 Asian financial crisis, Korea faced a heavily indebted corporate sector and an underdeveloped financial market with policies to develop both direct and indirect financial markets and an integrated supervisory framework. At the onset, the reforms shut down troubled financial institutions, which had piled up bad debts. The number of banks fell from 33 in 1998 to 19 at the end of 2004, while the number of merchant banks dropped from 30 to just 2. The financial restructuring cost the government $160.5 won. The government enforced measures to curb reckless lending, which had contributed to the Jabels amassing huge debts. During the 2008 global financial crisis, the government injected capital into banks and arranged currency swaps to stabilise exchange rates and improve liquidity. The Bank of Korea cut interest rates six times, from 5.25% in October 2008 to 2% in February 2009, providing additional liquidity of 28 trillion won, or 2.7% of GDP. The government further shored up liquidity by creating a bank recapitalisation fund with an endowment of 20 trillion won. And it created a $10 trillion bond market stabilisation fund to provide liquidity and established a $40 trillion corporate restructuring fund to solve the bad asset problem in financial institutions while arranging a $100 billion payment guarantee for banks' short-term liabilities. The World Economic Forum's latest global competitiveness report says Korea ranked 74th in financial market efficiency due to inadequate financial services, insufficient access to loans, and lack of support for venture startups. The Korean experience has useful policy implications for emerging Asian economies, which are susceptible to external financial shocks. Emerging Asian economies must strengthen their financial regulatory systems. One of the main causes of financial crises in emerging economies is inadequate financial regulation and supervision. Reforms must promote effective incentives, improve the transparency and soundness of the financial institutions, and boost the prudential regulation and supervision of the financial sector. Emerging Asian countries must build up a broad and consistent monetary and financial policy framework and develop tools that curb asset bubbles and volatile capital flows. They should support financial market development and innovations, such as digital payment, transfer services, among others, and regulate them in a balanced manner. The global financial crisis highlighted the dangers of unrestrained, complex and obscure modern finance. Governments must stimulate and effectively manage innovations without stifling them by improving transparency and providing the right incentives to players. Emerging Asian economies also need to promote regional and global financial cooperation. Dealing with crises resulting from systematic failure and cross-border financial panic calls for cooperation among emerging economies. They must, as a group, Take on greater responsibility for developing global supervisory and regulatory structures by actively engaging in discussions at global meetings such as the Group of 20, the Financial Stability Board and the IMF. Given their high vulnerability to cross-border capital flows, neighbouring economies in the region such as the ASEAN Plus 3 must strengthen cooperation in financial supervision – surveillance and regulatory issues to manage and prevent future crises. Emerging Asian economies cannot afford to be complacent. They must gird themselves for any crisis that may come their way. That report was based on
2: research done for ADBI by Jong-Hua Lee, a professor of economics and director of the Asiatic Research Institute at Korea University. You're listening to Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. Now, food security is important to all countries, but it's threatened by weak institutions and corruption in emerging markets. Angelina Will has this report on what governments can do to ensure that agricultural research and development get the investment they need.
4: Robust institutions and low levels of corruption are more important to reducing hunger than population size or the state of a country's natural resources. Food security, the ability of a country to feed its people, will become even more important in coming years as Asia's population rises and resources grow scarcer. A study of 10 countries in Asia and the Middle East found that food security grows alongside the development of political democracy economic growth, strong judicial systems, and other institutions. Asia will need to produce more food despite resources that are already limited and will be even more stretched as populations grow. While environmental issues, including climate change, are tough challenges, institutional reform is the most important step for countries in the region seeking food security for their people. Food security is damaged by corruption and weak institutions whether countries are large or small, and regardless of their natural resources. Harsh climates and poor soil matter less than a fair judicial system and honest politicians. Governments that are accountable to their people and transparent in their operations are more likely to invest in agriculture to increase food security. Israel, Singapore, the Republic of Korea, and Japan have good levels of food security and strong institutions that promote economic growth and equitable distribution of resources, and keep corruption at a minimum. India, the People's Republic of China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and Pakistan all have weaker institutions, leading to higher corruption and greater inequality. Economic growth is an important driver for food security, but it only goes so far without healthy institutional support and low levels of corruption. Weak judicial systems and other institutions allow corruption to flourish, exacerbating inequalities and leaving a large segment of the population prone to hunger. China's rapid economic growth has raised its level of food security, but a lack of reform in its key institutions means it still has a way to go to ensure all its citizens have enough to eat. Reform of Asia's institutions will help governments take on the challenge of raising food security in the future, but that doesn't mean the governments themselves need to take a heavy hand in organizing food production or distribution. Governments need to ensure that the necessary investments are made in agricultural research and development, but markets can play a key role in achieving food security. Promoting efficient and smoothly functioning markets should be a priority for Asian governments with the government's role mainly to enact and oversee a proper regulatory framework for agriculture. Food wastage should be minimized, with technological improvements and education helping to reduce waste on farms, in transit, and at the dinner table. Global trade needs to be promoted so countries without adequate natural resources can maintain food security. Singapore, for example, has very limited natural resources but manages a high level of food security.
2: And that was based on research done for the ADBI compiled in the book Food Insecurity in Asia, Why Institutions Matter, edited by Zhang Yezhou, a professor at the College of Business, Law and Governance, James Cook University, Australia, and Guanghua Wan, an economist at ADB in Manila. Having enough food to feed a country's people is becoming an increasingly charged economic issue in the world's most populous countries. Shelby Cook has this report that suggests overall food consumption in India and China will go up by 50% in 2030 and meat, dairy and processed food consumption is expected to go up even more.
0: India and the People's Republic of China must act quickly if they are to have enough to eat over the coming decades. For the PRC, the biggest challenges come before 2030 when its population is expected to peak, then decline. India, which will take over the mantle of the world's most populous country around that time, will see its food needs continue to grow for decades after that, especially if it manages to ease the poverty that now afflicts one in five of its people. The outcome of the efforts in the PRC and India will have consequences for the food supply of Asia and the rest of the world. Their success in meeting their food needs will be especially important to other countries having difficulty feeding their own populations. Food consumption in the PRC in India will rise by at least 50% by 2030, with the consumption of higher-value foods such as meat, dairy and processed foods rising even faster. Growth in domestic food supplies in both countries will fail to match the rise in consumption and the cost of producing food will increase due to scarcer natural resources. Both India and the PRC have limited farmland, with industry, business and houses demanding more space. Land values are rising. Areas dedicated to growing food will shrink unless priority is given to agriculture. The cost of producing food domestically will rise, but global food prices will fall, making imports less expensive. That will result in rising imports in both countries. If gross domestic product rises fast enough and the PRC and India invest in agriculture while controlling population growth, the two countries will be able to handle the challenges. The best-case scenario is that the PRC in India will improve global food security, an especially welcome result for those countries where food supplies are at risk. But a failure to invest in agriculture and improve GDP will mean that domestic food supplies in the PRC in India will decline between 2030 and 2050. Both domestic and import prices will rise and global food supplies will fall. If the PRC's population begins to decline as expected in the 2030s, that should alleviate some of the pressure, so long as the country makes investing in agriculture a priority alongside raising consumer incomes. India's challenges will last longer, as its population is expected to continue growing into the 2030s and 2040s. Unlike the PRC, which has made considerable strides in reducing poverty, India still has a large proportion of its citizens who are undernourished. Raising them from poverty will put more pressure on domestic and imported food supplies. Failing to do so will only be worse.
2: That report was also based on research done for the ADBI, compiled in the book Food Insecurity in Asia, Why Institutions Matter, edited by Zhang Yezhou, a professor at the College of Business, Law and Governance, James Cook University, Australia and Guanghua Wan, an economist at ADB Manila. You're listening to Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. Now, it's been suggested that just looking at traditional trade statistics is no longer giving the big global economic picture. Toby Miller with this report on how the global value chain can change the way we view the United States' trade activity.
1: Trade deficits are considered bad news for economies, and for an economy the size of the United States, a deficit of $745 billion in 2015, the largest seen in decades, would be cause for alarm. But the true picture is more complex. Looking beyond traditional statistics shows how burgeoning global value chains are now driving changes in the manufacturing of, trade in, and value of goods multinational corporations that have successfully leveraged global value chains have pivoted away from manufacturing and now concentrate more fully on marketing, design, and innovation. Apple, Nike, Reebok, The Limited, and The Gap are major players in consumer electronics, athletic footwear, and fashion-oriented apparel, but own not a single production facility in the United States. With the exception of Apple, none of them owns production facilities anywhere in the world. Official statistics have yet to catch up with the new trade realities emerging from global value chains. Although the gross profit margins of the Apple iPhone exceed 60% and that of Nike products is more than 45%, this value is not shown in U.S. export metrics. Overseas sales data of Apple, the U.S.'s largest consumer products company, clearly reveals the link between intellectual property, division of labor, and distribution networks involved in global value chains. An alternative scenario that includes value-added would highlight the profound impact this single company has on total U.S. exports, increasing them by a full 3.4 percent, and on the trade deficit, shrinking it by 7 percent. Apple has $152 billion in overseas sales. When a foreign consumer pays the equivalent of $500 for a single iPhone, Apple earns $321.04. This figure is missing from U.S. goods and services statistics, nor does it appear in export and import data. Foreign iPhone sales create strong trade flows for foreign companies, and these sales increase U.S. exports very little. The $321.04 that Apple earns from every sale, which is an expression solely of value-added, is invisible in U.S. export figures. Few numbers demonstrate the overseas appeal of Apple products like the 45.2% growth in net foreign sales from 2013 to 2015. One that comes close, however, is the 56.5% increase over the same period of value added, a figure attributable specifically to the iPhone, which has the largest gross margin of all Apple products. Given how these implied returns benefit Apple's overall operations, they should be considered an integral part of U.S. exports. The most vivid example of the discrepancy between conventional statistics and realized value-added is in the People's Republic of China. The PRC bears so much overall responsibility for each value chain product, its export statistics are robust. Yet the limits of these statistics are thrown into stark relief by the fact that multinational corporations pocket the largest share of the whole value-added of these products when they are sold within the PRC itself. The value-added of Apple products sold in the PRC increased 135% from 2013 to 2015, which, if reflected in export statistics, would augment U.S. exports to the PRC by 16.6% in 2015 and reduce the U.S. deficit by 5.2%. Japan's $69 billion trade surplus with the U.S. is an object lesson on the limits of trade statistics. Comparing Japan's automotive exports with Apple products shows the asymmetric nature of reporting in the U.S.-Japan trade balance. Japanese cars flowing to the U.S. contain no global value added and are simply recorded as imports. iPhones flowing from the PRC to Japan are not recorded as U.S. exports, yet are saturated with the value added stemming from Apple's intellectual property. An accurate representation of this would augment U.S. exports to Japan by 8.6% and reduce its deficit by 7.8%. Researchers are now drawing on the greater analytical sophistication of the concept of current account to remedy the shortcomings of conventional export data. The current account combines net exports of goods and services and net income transfers to determine the trade balance. It places a value on intellectual property as part of product sales and clarifies the U.S. trade balance with foreign economies. But the limits of conventional export statistics mean it will require more than just increased data gathering to refine the U.S. trade balance. Because of global value chains, items crossing borders now represent more than just saleable commodities. Accurately quantifying the value added in products will show how global value chains enable U.S. multinational corporations' intellectual property to affect exports and will improve the view of U.S. trade activity. That's Toby Miller with a report based on research done
2: for the ADBI by Yu Yuqing Sing, a professor of economics and the director of Asian Economic Policy at the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies, Tokyo. People in the PRC are living longer and working longer, but longer life expectancy has also given rise to problems. Eric Fay has this report on how generational differences in education, employment, health, and background are creating an even wider income
5: gap in China. An already widening gap between rich and poor in the People's Republic of China is likely to worsen due to its rapidly aging population. Increasing life expectancy and the effect of a decades-long family planning policy that limited the number of children people could have has been felt throughout the economy. At the end of 2011, the number of people over 60 years old in the PRC reached 185 million, or 14% of the population. By 2030, the PRC is expected to become the world's most aged society, and by 2050, the number of elderly people is forecast to climb to 454 million, or 33% of the total population. For about three decades, the PRC has seen double-digit annual economic growth. It is the second-largest economy in the world. But the economy's expansion has also been associated with rapid population aging and soaring inequality. The PRC's Gini coefficient, which measures the income or wealth distribution of the population and is the most commonly used gauge of inequality, jumped from 0.30 in 1980 to 0.53 in 2010 and is among the highest in the world. Income inequality in the PRC is a serious issue, especially compared with countries at a similar stage of economic development. High and persistent income inequality can significantly hurt demand, stall growth, trigger economic crises, and erode social cohesion. Population aging is a worldwide problem. Other countries in East and Southeast Asia face the same difficulty as life expectancy increases and birth and fertility rates fall. The United Nations projects there are some 600 million people aged 65 or older, and by 2035, this figure is expected to top 1.1 billion, or 13% of the world's population. The ratio of old people, aged 65 or above, to labor force, aged 15 to 64, will grow even faster. From 1960 to 2015, this ratio for the world population rose by more than 46% from 8.61 to 12.33, or about 12 old people for every 100 working. By 2050, it is expected to jump to 25, while in rich countries it will be much higher. Japan will have 73 old people for every 100 work-age people by 2050, an increase from 35 in 2010. In the PRC, the old age dependency rate will more than double from 15 to 36 by 2050. People with poor education tended to have lower incomes and consume less than those with higher education. This trend is different in developed countries such as the United States and the United Kingdom where income inequality is higher than consumption inequality. An added challenge is that the credit market in the developing world is not yet fully developed, which means access to credit is a challenge. Better access to, and knowledge about, financial services would reduce inequality over time, signifying the importance of promoting financial access among citizens in a rapidly aging society.
2: And that was based on research done for ADBI by Su Dong Chen, a professor at the School of Business, Department of Finance and Accounting, Bolden wallace University, Bi Hong Huang, a research fellow at the Asian Development Bank Institute, and Xiao Shuai Li, a PhD candidate at the University of Macau. You've been listening to Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. I'm Timothy Goh. Thanks for joining
1: us. This has been Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. See the show notes for the transcript and related material. For more information about us, please visit adbi.org.